396, chapters 38 and 39 of Sense and Sensibility. Book talk begins at 10 minutes. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 396 The One That Brings the Bus. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and Marchair Yarns, hand dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy and our patrons at patreon.com slash craftlet. Visit the site and find out what kinds of rewards await you for supporting Craftlit. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. I hope you are having a great week and a fabulous weekend because this is my last week and weekend of summer. Next Monday, kids are in school. I can get back to normal until the trip to England, and that's going to be fun. But first, I have to make it through the beginning of the school year. And that is not going to be easy. For those of you listening in real time, I apologize so much for the technical problems. I don't have an explanation. My computer keeps dying. We're trying to fix it. It stinks. So I... I can't guarantee anything. And for those of you who are not listening in real time, nothing's happening. (laughs) Everything is perfect and wonderful and going the right direction. And messages are starting to come in for the 400th episode. Don't forget, you have a variety of ways to get audio to the show. One is by calling 1-206-350. One six four two. That is a voicemail line that you can talk on forever, but don't. And you can leave a message there. You can use SpeakPipe, although that has a limited amount of time to it for leaving voicemail messages. And then there is another way. You could record your own message using your own recording device and send that to me by email. You can email it to heather at craftlet.com. And what do I mean when I say on your own recording device? I mean something like this. Hi, Heather. It's Marta, also known as Marta Schmarta on Ravelry. Well, it's been a crazy year for me, too. I don't think I've been nearly as busy as you, and I still thought it was crazy. I wanted to let you know I finally am getting to Bleak House. I love it. It was a Dickens I had missed, and I've never read it or even heard anything about it until you recorded it for the Prime membership. I love it. Can I say that again? I love it. But (laughs) it made me think of, you know, something along the lines of those wacky Facebook quizzes, which Dickens character or which classic novel character are you most like? You know, I realized. I may have thought I was like Esther at times, but no, not at all. I am very, very much like, and it makes sense because it's my favorite classic novel, Prickly Jane Eyre. I am. Through our, our examination of all these great novels and listening to the depth that you provide, I'm Jane Eyre. Oh no. (laughs) So, and I suppose just like her and relative to the times, I'm coming into my own a little later in life and that's okay. I'm settling down and doing great things now. Whereas I spent a lot of time wandering around, offending a lot of people. And now I'm finally coming into my own and, and allowing myself to be myself. Isn't that funny? So I wanted to thank you, Heather, for providing insight, not only on a literary scale, but also on a personal scale. Well, have a great day. I'm here at the hospital where I work on weekends. 
again, part of my self-discovery in loving what I do. So, have a great day, Heather. Thank you for all you do. I will continue to do whatever I can to support you and Craftlet because I just feel it's so important. Thanks. Bye-bye. And so that was Marta, long-time listener and friend of the show. She is a teacher and a fabulous one and exactly the kind of teacher that you wish your kids could have. So thank you, Marta. I am so glad you enjoyed Bleak House. I loved Bleak House. I loved doing it. I miss the characters in it. And in fact, if you're kind of curious about what the whole deal is and why you might keep noticing that people are saying things like, I finished Bleak House and it's so awesome. I am going to offer you an option, which is this. Over in a a little one-off store that I have, I have the Bleak House bundles and I have them done separately. And if you follow the link in the show notes, it'll take you to a page where you can just get the first bundle as a little tester. It's a little cheapy. And then in a week or so, if you like it, I'll send you a coupon and that'll reduce the price of the full Bleak House. So that's like 800 and, I don't know, 60 pages of audio. <laughs> Hint, it's a long book. So Yes, Bleak House is awesome. And Jane Eyre, how can you not be thrilled being Jane Eyre? Yay! And thank you again. Your audio rocked. I really appreciate it. So I wrote back to Marta and I said, wow, that was some of the best audio I've ever had come in. What did you record it on? She said it's a covered parking garage that she was in, but she used her iPhone 5. And she was using an app called Voice Pro. It's free. And it's nice because it has meters. You can do editing. You can look at your clipping, making sure that you're not clipping. And you can have a visual frequency and volume monitor running. So that's cool. And that's another idea if you want to send something in for the 400th episode. If you don't remember what to send in for the 400th episode, all that information is in the last newsletter. There's a link to it in the show notes at episode 396. So craftlit.com slash 396, and you will find everything you need there. In brief, you are sending either a book you love that you craftlit a little bit of for us by reading a little tiny bit and telling us what it is about it that you love. And the other one is the Goofy Awards, like the award for most likely to be hit on the head with a parasol goes to Victor Frankenstein. Because I think we can all agree he deserves to be head on the head with a parasol (laughs) at the very least. So that is all of that. Ages ago, I had put up all the way back on June 23rd. I had put up a little call to action saying that I wanted to share what you guys were doing for some of the crafty talk over the summer. Listener Anne, who told us that she makes glass beads, although not in the summer because it's too hot, but that she makes glass beads while she listens and she weaves and she works with clay and she draws and she batiks. She said she learned and she wanted to pass this information on in case you were interested or knew somebody who would be interested in learning the same things. She went to the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina. And that is www.folkschool.org, F-O-L-K-S-C-H-O-O-L. And she said she couldn't recommend it highly enough. And then just two minutes ago, I got another post saying, and this is from Dawn, I was crocheting pixel squares last night while working on catching up on the podcasts. I am currently catching up on Sense and Sensibility, but I plan to go back to listen to other books as well. And pixel squares, if you haven't seen them before, I will link to from the show notes so you can take a look. So cool. We've had a lot more crocheters just this year, or or maybe it's just that the crocheters are finally feeling comfortable enough to come out of the woodwork. I know I've been crocheting more lately, but my neck and shoulders still are not happy with knitting, so, so crocheting is a good option. So to lead us into our book talk today, I present you a very 
interesting public service announcement on corsets. Amanda, take it away. Hi, Heather. This is Amanda in St. Charles, and I am going back and listening um, to your earlier episodes, and I'm remembering, and I've, I've jumped around in the stories, and I can't remember which stories you've talked about, your experience with corsets, and and I just wanted to say that corsets are not the evil instruments of torture that a lot of people think they are. I used to do Civil War reenacting, and a well-fitted corset, emphasis on well-fitted, a well-fitted corset is one of the most comfortable garments you can wear. It takes all the weight of your clothes, especially Civil War clothes with the hoops and the extra petticoats and the skirts and everything, takes all that weight off your back and puts it into the corset and it also supports your bosom and lifts it up and it's just so comfortable that it breaks my heart to hear that you had such a bad experience with them. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. I have to tell you, I am very relieved to find out that I was just being maimed at school and that women throughout history actually fared much better than I did in that contraption. And I wrote back to Amanda and I asked if her stays were bone, boning, or metal. And she said the only stuff that's close to whalebone that's legal is metal, which blew my mind. But clearly she was not talking about a birdcage corset, which I have a picture of in the show notes. But she also wrote back and said this. The story you told several years ago of being fitted for a corset and having them lace it up until the edges met in the back, they had no idea what they were doing. There should be two to three inches of a gap between the edges in the back. Corsets were for clothing support and for creating a beautiful smooth surface upon which the fabric was to be tailored. And then she sent this helpful tip. If you ever go to a reenactment, or some costumed event where the ladies wear large hoop skirts, cages, or farthingales, watch them when they walk. If their skirts swing from side to side like a bell, they are not wearing a corset. Uh Uh-huh. I know. I thought that was pretty interesting. But now it's time. Sense and Sensibility. Well, of course, it will come as no surprise to you that this week we are dealing with aftermath. The aftermath of the divulged secret between Lucy Steele and Edward Ferrers and and what's going to happen. You know, when we last left off, Mrs. Jennings was pretty much saying, well, I'll, I'll take him in. I don't care. I think what he did was noble and good and fair, which says a lot, again, about Mrs. Jennings. She's been one of the more interesting characters in this whole book, I, I, found, I have found. But now we have to deal with the aftermath. And as far as stuff goes in the chapter, there's not a whole lot of terminology that's going to throw you or little things that are coming up that are kind of odd. But I do want to give you a couple of reminders. Harley Street is where the Dashwoods live. And the Dashwoods would be John and Fanny. And Bartlett's Buildings is where the Steeles, Lucy Steele and her sister, where their cousins live. And that's who Lucy and her sister were living with before they had been invited by Fanny to stay with her and John. And presumably that is where they went back to once they were summarily kicked out of the Dashwoods' home. One of the things that we can be fairly certain of is that Mrs. Jennings is going to want to know as much about the situation as possible. So she is going to try and find ways to get that intel. And what with the book continuing on in time, we're moving into March, the weather is starting to get better. And so there is more opportunity to leave the house and interact with other people at places other than balls and parties and dances. And so you'll get a a whole scene that takes place outside of Mrs. Jennings' house, which is awfully nice. Nice, nice to be out in a boot. 
And then just, just a reminder, I know we even talked about it last week. If you go into orders, that means you are being commissioned to be a minister of some level within the Church of England. If you are unlucky, you would be getting a curacy, which means you would be doing all the grunt work for the rector, but the rector would get the most of the money and the house. And, and you, if you were lucky, had a room somewhere. So the clergyman would have the living. That's like capital T, capital L. The living would mean the house and most of the money. The curate would do most of the work and not get a lot of money. And this is, this is how class figures into how parish duties were divided up back then. You had to have somebody basically put you forward the same way that you would need someone to put you forward to go into the army as an officer or the navy. You would have to purchase your commission and you need somebody to stand up for you. Here, you don't necessarily need to purchase a position, except that you kind of do because you need somebody within the parish who has the money that's going to be used to pay you from the taxes from the people in the parish. And this is, I, I think I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, this is actually where Charlotte Bronte's dad got messed with. In Haworth, at the time, there was a very strange, it was not normal, political situation where there was a council, I think it was a council of five, who determined the, the clergy setup for the Haworth parish. And there's all sorts of political stuff going on back there. And, you know, the Brontes were a little on the prickly side. So that made it harder for him. But Edward doesn't have any trade. Edward doesn't really, he went to Oxford, but that doesn't mean that he's been set up to be a lawyer or anything else. But he does honestly, sincerely seem to like the idea of going into the ministry. The problem, of course, being that without his mother to front for him, it's hard to know what kind of a position he could get. And so you're going to hear a lot of discussion going in and out of that topic for both chapters today. Silk stockings. It has been a while since we talked about silk stockings. During Jane Austen's day, there were three different kinds of stockings that women could wear. They would have been cotton stockings, which were most likely sewn stockings and not, not flexible the way that you would think them to be based on cotton socks now. There wouldn't have been a whole lot of give to them. Wool stockings, obviously, great in the wintertime, far more flexible and, you know, better fitting. And then silk. Now, silk stockings, I think the first, the first recorded gift of silk stockings to a monarch was to, in, in England, not, not counting France, was a, a gift to Elizabeth the first. And she thought they were marvelous. So that kind of places the silk stocking in time as far as where it began and then, you know, the rise in popularity because, of course, they feel great. So who wouldn't want them if you could afford them? Affording was important. They were expensive. They were certainly more expensive than wool. But silk was particularly difficult to get at this time because the Napoleonic Wars were going on. There's a lot of stuff that was difficult to get during Jane Austen's time, and, and silk, silk stockings were, were one of those things. So mentioning that you're wearing silk stockings would kind of be like, like if you said to someone, oh, what a cute purse, and they said, thank you, it's a real Louis Vuitton, or thank you, I got it from the coach store, not the outlet, or why, yes, it's a Movado Museum watch, why? Making love in Jane Austen's day was a little more lightweight. It was professing your love. You would make overtures of love to someone, telling them how much you love them. It just sounds a little odd to us. We had talked a couple of weeks ago about fire screens and the, the handheld fire screens that you would hold up to block the heat from hitting your face and melting your beeswax makeup. And then the big boards that you would put in front of a fireplace that were more decorative. You will hear those referred to today as a chimney board. And chimney boards specifically were the wooden boards that were used 
decorated and used in the summer to push up against the fireplace and prevent drafts from coming down or, or worse, soot from coming down and getting all over everything in the house. So instead of a fire screen, you will hear chimney board. Same thing. And a closet in Jane Austen's day was very much like a closet in Shakespeare's day. It was a small room. It wasn't a little nook or cranny where you would hang clothing. It was, it was a room. It could be just a little room off of your bedroom that maybe there's a dressing table in there. Maybe there's a, a chair and a mirror. There's, you know, it could be an, a writing desk. Sometimes you hear about people writing in the closet and it doesn't mean that they've gone in and made space among the coats to pull out a pen and paper. Several chapters ago, we heard about Fanny Dashwood giving the Steel Girls little needle books, little needle cases that were probably purchased from French aristocrats who had run from the, the terror. Another name for these little needle books was Huswif or Huswife, and it's H-U-S-W-I-F-E. And that's just, that was just the name for a little needlework case. Nothing more than that. If you had listened to North and South with us, then you might remember muslin not being the thick, heavy, like duck cloth that we would use to construct flats for a set in a theater play. This is very lightweight muslin, almost gauzy. And it is primarily what you see in the paintings and the pictures from Jane Austen's day when the women are wearing day dresses, not ball gowns, not fancy schmancy dresses, but, you know, they're everyday dresses. Now, there would be different degrees of thinness and fineness. And of course, you wouldn't want to wear your lightest, gauziest dress out to go feed the chickens. That would be a more expensive dress. That would certainly be a dress that could be torn more easily and would be harder to repair if it was torn. Very hard to patch something that's that thin. But they also came in lots of different patterns. There were, there were all sorts of different uh, text, texture patterns that they could put onto them. And you, hear, uh, you often hear a lot about this. I think Northanger Abbey has a big section or a number of sections where there's very serious discussion about the muslins. Uh, preferment. I know we've mentioned it before. This is the appointment to a position in the clergy. That's the, that's the name of the process and fact of granting a man his, his position. And that was the thing that you really needed to have connections for in order to pull it off or have it happen at all. A girl of all work would be a servant, a female, always female, female servant who did pretty much everything. Washed, cleaned, cooked. Obviously, she wouldn't be able to do everything all the time. So if you were in a situation where the only servant you could get was a girl of all work, you were probably doing some of that work yourself and not sitting around embroidering, just to keep that in mind. You'll hear a reference to Marianne turning from one lesson to another. I think, at least in the States, we would call them exercises, uh, piano exercises, rather than piano lessons. The lesson is when somebody is tutoring you. And the exercises are, I mean, Bach has, you know, how many hundreds of exercises? Because good Lord, you need them if you're going to play Bach. So that's, that's all that means when she goes from one lesson to another. She doesn't have somebody there watching over her shoulder. Now, one of the things that we hadn't talked about was beyond the curacy situation. There's another couple of levels in the clergy. One is if you have... If, you're, if you are the rector of a parish, all of the tithes in that parish go to you. If you are a vicar, which is the next step down, you had the right to receive some of the tithing. So generally, a rectory, be, being a rector of a parish, was a great thing, unless it was a particularly small or particularly poor parish. And then you might be in trouble, even if you're getting all the tithes. So there was really no standardization about how, how you got paid, how much you got paid. None of that. 
And I think that is everything you might possibly need to dive into today's chapters. So let's hear them. 38 and 39 of Sense and Sensibility, read for you by Mia Daguerre. Chapter 38 Mrs. Jennings was very warm in her praise of Edward's conduct, but only Eleanor and Marianne understood its true merit. They only knew how little he had to tempt him to be disobedient, and how small was the consolation, beyond the consciousness of doing right, that could remain to him in the loss of friends and fortune. Eleanor gloried in his integrity, and Marianne forgave all his offences in compassion for his punishment. But though confidence between them was, by this public discovery, restored to its proper state, it was not a subject on which either of them were very fond of dwelling when alone. Eleanor avoided it upon principle, as tending to fix still more upon her thoughts by the too warm, too positive assurances of Marianne, that belief of Edward's continued affection for herself, which she rather wished to do away and Marianne's courage soon failed her in trying to converse upon a topic which always left her more dissatisfied with herself than ever by the comparison it necessarily produced between Eleanor's conduct and her own. She felt all the force of that comparison, but not as her sister had hoped, to urge her to exertion now. She felt it with all the pain of continued self-reproach, regretted most bitterly that she had never exerted herself before, but it brought only the torture of penitence without the hope of amendment. Her mind was so much weakened that she still fancied present exertion impossible, and therefore it only dispirited her more. Nothing new was heard by them for a day or two afterwards of affairs in Harley Street or Bartlett's buildings, but though so much of the matter was known to them already that Mrs Jennings might have had enough to do in spreading that knowledge farther, without seeking after more, she had resolved from the first to pay a visit of comfort and inquiry to her cousins as soon as she could, and nothing but the hindrance of more visitors than usual had prevented her going to them within that time. The third day succeeding their knowledge of the particulars was so fine, so beautiful a Sunday as to draw many to Kensington Gardens, though it was only the second week in March. Mrs Jennings and Eleanor were of the number, but Marianne, who knew that the Willoughbys were again in town and had a constant dread of meeting them, chose rather to stay at home than venture into so public a place. An intimate acquaintance of Mrs Jennings joined them soon after they entered the gardens, and Eleanor was not sorry that by her continuing with them and engaging all Mrs Jennings' conversation, she was herself left to quiet reflection. She saw nothing of the Willoughbys, nothing of Edward, and for some time nothing of anybody who could by any chance, whether grave or gay, be interesting to her. But at last she found herself, with some surprise, accosted by Miss Steele who, though looking rather shy, expressed great satisfaction in meeting them, and on receiving encouragement from the particular kindness of Mrs Jennings, left her own party for a short time to join theirs. Mrs Jennings immediately whispered to Eleanor, "'Get it all out of her, my dear. She will tell you anything if you ask. You can see I cannot leave Mrs Clark.' It was lucky, however, for Mrs Jennings' curiosity, and for Eleanor's too, that she would tell them anything without being asked, for nothing would otherwise have been learnt. "'I'm so glad to meet you,' said Miss Steele, taking her familiarly by the arm, "'for I wanted to see you of all things in the world.' And then lowering her voice, "'I suppose Mrs Jennings has heard all about it. Is she angry?' "'Not at all, I believe, with you.' "'That is a good thing.' "'And Lady Middleton, is she angry?' "'I cannot suppose it is possible that she should.' "'I am monstrous glad. "'Good gracious, I've had such a time of it. "'I never saw Lucy in such a rage in my life. "'She vowed at first she would never trim me up a new bonnet "'nor do anything else for me again so long as she lived. "'But look now, she is quite tongue too, "'and we are good friends as ever. "'Look, she made me this bow to my hat "'and put in the feather last night.' "'There, now, you're going to laugh at me too. "'But why should I not wear pink ribbons? "'I do not care if it is the doctor's favourite colour. "'I'm sure for my part I should have never have known "'he did like it better than any other colour, "'if he had not happened to say so. "'My cousins have been so plaguing me. "'I declare sometimes I do not know which way to look before them.' "'She had wandered away to a subject on which Eleanor had nothing to say, "'and therefore soon judged it expedient "'to find her way back again to the first. "'Well, but Miss Dashwood,' speaking triumphantly, 
"'People may say what they choose about Mr Ferris declaring he would not have Lucy, "'for it's no such thing, I can tell you, "'and it's quite a shame for such an ill-natured report to be spread abroad. "'Whatever Lucy might think about it herself, you know, "'it was no business of other people to set it down for certain.' "'I never heard anything of the kind hinted at before, I assure you,' said Eleanor. "'Oh, did you not?' "'But it was said, I know very well, and by more than one, "'for Miss Godby told Miss Sparks that nobody in their senses "'could expect Mr Ferris to give up a woman like Miss Morton "'with thirty thousand pounds to her fortune, "'for Lucy Steele that had nothing at all, "'and I had it from Miss Sparks myself. "'And besides that, my cousin Richard said himself "'that when it came to the point, he was afraid Mr Ferris would be off, "'and when she did not come near us for three days, "'I could not tell what to think myself.' "'and I believe in my heart Lucy gave up it all for lost. "'For we came away from your brothers on Wednesday, "'and we saw nothing of him, not all Thursday, Friday and Saturday, "'and did not know what was become of him. "'Once Lucy thought to write to him, but then her spirit rose against that. "'However, this morning he came, just as we came home from church, "'and then it all came out how he had been sent for on Wednesday to Harley Street "'and been talked to by his mother and all of them, "'and how he had declared before them all that he loved nobody but Lucy, "'and nobody but Lucy would he have, "'and how he had been so worried by what passed "'that as soon as he had went away from his mother's house "'he had got upon his horse and ridden to the country somewhere or other, "'and how he had stayed about at an inn all Thursday and Friday "'on purpose to get the better of it.' And after thinking it all over and over again, he said, it seemed to him as if, now he had no fortune and no nothing at all, it would be quite unkind to keep her on to the engagement, because it must be for her loss, for he had nothing but two thousand pounds, and no hope of anything else, and if he was to go into orders, as he had some thoughts, he could get nothing but a curacy. And how was they going to live upon that?' He could not bear to think of her doing no better, so he begged, if she had the least mind for it, to put an end to the matter directly, and to leave him to shift for himself. I heard him say all this as plain as could possibly be, and it was entirely for her sake, and upon her account, that he said a word about being off, and not upon his own, I will take my oath, he never dropped a syllable of being tired of her, or wishing to marry Miss Morton, or anything like that.' "'but to be sure Lucy would not give an ear to such kind of talking. "'So she told him directly, with a great deal about sweet and love, you know, and all that. "'Oh, la, one can't repeat such kind of things, you know. "'She told him directly she had not the least mind in the world to be off, "'for she could live with him upon a trifle, "'and how little soever he might have, "'she should be very glad to have it all, you know, or something of the kind.' So then he was monstrous happy, and they talked on for some time about what they should do, and they agreed he should take orders directly, and they must wait to be married until he got a living, and just then I could not hear any more, for my cousin called from below to tell me Miss Richardson was come in her coach, and would take one of us to Kensington Gardens, so I was forced to go into the room and interrupt them, and to ask Lucy if she would like to go, but she did not care to leave Edward, so I just run upstairs and put on a pair of silk stockings and came off with Richardson. Richardson's. Uh, I do not understand what you mean by interrupting them, said Eleanor. You were all in the same room together, were you not? No, indeed, not us. La, Miss Dashwood, do you think people make love when anybody else is by? Oh, for shame! To be sure you must know better than that, laughing affectedly. No, no, they were shut up in the drawing room together, and all I heard was only by listening at the door. How, cried Eleanor, "'Have you been repeating to me what you only learnt yourself by listening at the door? "'I'm sorry I did not know it before, "'for certainly I would not have suffered you to give me particulars of a conversation "'which you ought not to have known yourself. "'How could you behave so unfairly by your sister?' "'Oh, la, there's nothing in that. "'I only stood at the door and heard what I could, "'and I'm sure Lucy would have done just the same by me. "'For a year or two back, when Martha Sharp and I had so many secrets together, "'she never made any bones of hiding in a closet or behind a chimney-board "'on purpose to hear what we said.' "'Eleanor tried to talk of something else, "'but Miss Steele could not be kept beyond a couple of minutes "'from what was uppermost in her mind.' "'Edward talks of going to Oxford soon,' she said, "'but now he's lodging at number Pall Mall. "'What an ill-natured woman his mother is, ain't she? "'And your brother and sister were not very kind. "'However, I shan't say anything against them to you, "'and to be sure they did send us home in their own chariot, "'which was more than I looked for. 
and for my part I was all in a fright for fear your sister should ask us for the huswife she gave us a day or two before. But, however, nothing was said about them, and I took care to keep mine out of sight. Edward has got some business at Oxford, he says, so we must go there for a time, and after that, as soon as he can light upon a bishop, he will be ordained. I wonder what curacy he will get.' "'Good gracious!' giggling as she spoke. "'I'd lay my life. I'd know what my cousins will say when they hear of it. "'They will tell me I should write to the doctor "'and get Edward the curacy of his new living.' "'I know they will, but I'm sure I would not do such a thing for the world. "'Lar, I shall say directly, I wonder how you could think of such a thing. "'I write to the doctor, indeed.' "'Well,' said Eleanor, "'it is a comfort to be prepared against the worst. "'You have got your answer ready.' Miss Steele was going to reply on the same subject, but the approach of her own party made another more necessary. "'Oh, la, here come the Richardsons. I had a vast deal more to say to you, but I must not stay away from them for any longer. I assure you they are very genteel people. He makes a monstrous deal of money, and they keep their own coach. I have not time to speak to Mrs Jennings about it myself, but pray tell her I am quite happy to hear she is not in an anger against us, and Lady Middleton the same.' And if there's anything should happen to take you and your sister away, and Mrs Jennings should want company, I'm sure we shall be very glad to come and stay with her for as long a time as she likes. I suppose Lady Middleton won't ask us any more this bout. Goodbye. I'm sorry Miss Marianne was not here. Remember me kindly to her. Laura, if you've not got your best spotted muslin on, I wonder you're not afraid of it being torn. Such was her parting concern, for after this she had time only to pay her farewell compliments to Mrs Jennings before her company was claimed by Mrs Richardson, and Eleanor was left in possession of knowledge which might feed her powers of reflection some time, though she had learnt very little more than what had already been foreseen and foreplanned in her own mind. Edward's marriage with Lucy was finally determined on, and the time of its taking place remained as absolutely uncertain as she had concluded it would be. Everything depended, exactly after her expectation, on his getting that preferment, of which at present there seemed not the smallest chance. As soon as they returned to the carriage, Mrs Jennings was eager for information, but as Eleanor wished to spread as little as possible intelligence that had in the first place been so unfairly obtained, she confined herself to the brief repetition of such simple particulars as she felt assured that Lucy, for the sake of her own consequence, would choose to have known. The continuance of their engagement, and the means that were to be taken for promoting its end, was all her communication, and this produced from Mrs Jennings the following natural remark. "'Wait for his having a living!' "'Aye, we all know how that will end. "'They will wait twelve months, and finding no good comes of it, "'will set down upon a curacy of fifty pounds a year. "'With the interest of his two thousand, "'and what little matter Mr Steele and Mr Pratt can give her. "'Then they will have a child every year, "'and Lord help them how poor they will be. "'I must see what I can give them towards furnishing their house. Two maids and two men, indeed, as I talked of t'other day.' "'No, no, they must get a stout girl of all works. "'Betty's sister would never do for them now.' "'The next morning brought Eleanor a letter by the two-penny post from Lucy herself. "'It was as follows. "'Bartlett's Buildings, March. "'I hope my dear Miss Dashwood will excuse the liberty I take of writing to her, "'but I know your friendship for me will make you pleased to hear such a good account of myself "'and my dear Edward, after all the troubles we have went through lately. "'Therefore we'll make no apologies, but proceed to say that, thank God, "'though we have suffered dreadfully, we are both quite well now, "'and as happy as we will always be in one another's love.' we have had great trials and great persecutions but however at the same time gratefully acknowledge many friends yourself not the least among them whose great kindness i shall always thankfully remember as will edward too who i have told of it I am sure you will be glad to hear, as likewise, dear Mrs Jennings, I spent two happy hours with him yesterday afternoon. He would not hear of our parting, though earnestly did I, as I thought my duty required, urge him to it for prudence' sake, and would have parted for ever on the spot would he have consented to it. 
but he said it should never be. He did not regard his mother's anger while he could have my affections. Our prospects are not very bright, to be sure, but we must wait and hope for the best. He will be ordained shortly, and should it ever be in your power to recommend him to anybody that has a living to bestow, I am very sure you will not forget us. And dear Mrs Jennings, too, trust she will speak a good word for us to Sir John or Mr Palmer or any friend that may be able to assist us. Poor Anne was much to blame for what she did, but she did it for the best, so I say nothing. I hope Mrs Jennings won't think it too much trouble to give us a call, should she come this way any morning. It would be a great kindness, and my cousins would be proud to know her. My paper reminds me to conclude, and begging to be most gratefully and respectfully remembered to her, and to Sir John, and Lady Middleton, and the dear children when you chance to see them, and love to Miss Marianne, I am, etc., etc. As soon as Eleanor had finished it, she performed what she concluded to be its writer's real design, by placing it in the hands of Mrs Jennings, who read it aloud with many comments of satisfaction and praise. "'Very well indeed! How prettily she writes! "'Aye, that was quite proper to let him be off if he would. "'That was just like Lucy. "'Poor soul! I wish I could get them a living with all my heart. "'She calls me dear Mrs Jennings, you see. "'She is a good-hearted girl as ever lived. "'Very well, upon my word. "'That sentence is very prettily turned. "'Yes, yes, I will go and see her, sure enough.' How attentive she is to think of everybody. Thank you, my dear, for showing me it. It is as pretty a letter as ever I saw, and does Lucy's head and heart great credit. Chapter 39 The Miss Dashwoods had now been rather more than two months in town, and Marianne's impatience to be gone increased every day. She sighed for the air, the liberty, the quiet of the country, and fancied that if any place could give her ease, Barton must do it. Eleanor was hardly less anxious than herself from, for their removal, and only so much less bent on its being effected immediately as that she was conscious of the difficulties of so long a journey, which Marianne could not be brought to acknowledge. She began, however, seriously to turn her thoughts towards its accomplishment, and had already mentioned their wishes to their kind hostess, who resisted them with all the eloquence of her goodwill, when a plan was suggested, which, though detaining them from home yet a few weeks longer, appeared to Eleanor altogether much more eligible than any other. The Palmers were to remove to Cleveland about the end of March for the Easter holidays, and Mrs Jennings, with both friends, received a very warm invitation from Charlotte to go with them. This would not in itself have been sufficient for the delicacy of Miss Dashwood, but it was enforced with so much real politeness by Mr Palmer himself, as, joined to the very great amendment of his manners towards them, since her sister had been known to be unhappy, induced her to accept it with pleasure. When she told Marianne what she had done, however, her first reply was not very auspicious. "'Cleveland!' she cried with great agitation. "'No, I cannot go to Cleveland!' "'You forget,' said Eleanor gently, "'that its situation is not... "'that it is not in the neighbourhood of... "'But it is in Somersetshire. "'I cannot go into Somersetshire. "'There, where I looked forward to going. "'No, Eleanor, you cannot expect me to go there.' "'Eleanor would not argue upon the propriety "'of overcoming such feelings. "'She only endeavoured to counteract them by working on others.' and represented it, therefore, as a measure which would fix the time of her returning to that dear mother, whom she so much wished to see, in a more eligible, more comfortable manner than any other plan could do, and perhaps without any greater delay. From Cleveland, which was within a few miles of Bristol, the distance to Barton was not beyond one day, though a long day's journey, and their mother's servant might easily come there to attend them down, and as there could be no occasion for their staying above a week at Cleveland, they might now be at home in little more than three weeks' time. As Marianne's affection for her mother was sincere, it must triumph with little difficulty over the imaginary evil she had started. Mrs Jennings was so far from being weary of her guests that she pressed them very earnestly to return with her again from Cleveland. Eleanor was grateful for the attention, but it could not alter their design, and their mother's concurrence being readily gained, everything relative to their return was arranged as far as it could be, and Marianne found some relief in drawing up a statement of the hours that were yet to divide her from Barton. 
Ah, oh, Colonel, I do not know what you and I shall do without the Miss Dashwoods, was Mrs Jennings' address to him when he first called on her, after their leaving her was settled. For they are quite resolved upon going home from the Palmers. How forlorn we shall be when I come back. Lord, we shall sit and gape at one another as dull as two cats. Perhaps Mrs Jennings was in hopes by this vigorous sketch of their future ennui to provoke him to make that offer which might give himself an escape from it. And if so, she had soon afterwards a good reason to think her object gained. For on Eleanor's moving to the window to take more expeditiously the dimensions of a print which she was going to copy for her friend, he followed her to it with a look of particular meaning and conversed with her there for several minutes. The effect of his discourse on the lady too could not escape her observation, for though she was too honourable to listen, and had even changed her seat on purpose that she might not hear, to one close by the pianoforte on which Marianne was playing, she could not keep herself from seeing that Eleanor changed colour, attended with agitation, and was too intent on what he said to pursue her employment. Still farther in confirmation of her hopes, in the interval of Marianne's turning from one lesson to another, some words of the colonel's inevitably reached her ear, in which he seemed to be apologising from the badness of his house. This set the matter beyond doubt. She wondered indeed at his thinking it necessary to do so, but supposed it to be the proper etiquette. What Eleanor said in reply she could not distinguish, but judged from the motion of her lips that she did not think that any material objection and Mrs Jennings commended her in her heart for being so honest. Then they talked on for a few minutes longer without her catching a syllable, when another lucky stop in Marianne's performance brought her these words in the Colonel's calm voice. I'm afraid it cannot take place very soon. Astonished and shocked at so unlover-like a speech, she was almost ready to cry out, Lord, what should hinder it? But checking her desire, confined herself to this silent ejaculation, this is very strange. Sure, he need not wait to be older. This delay on the colonel's side, however, did not seem to offend or mortify his fair companion in the least, for on their breaking up the conference soon after and moving different ways, Mrs Jennings very plainly heard Eleanor say, and with a voice which showed her to feel what she said, I shall always think myself very much obliged to you. Mrs Jennings was delighted with her gratitude, and only wondered that after hearing such a sentence the Colonel should be able to take leave of them, as he immediately did, with the utmost sang-froid, and to go away without making her any reply. She had not thought her old friend could have made so indifferent a suitor. What had really passed between them was to this effect. "'I have heard,' said he, with great compassion, "'of the injustice your friend Mr Ferris has suffered from his family.' for if I understand the matter right, he has been entirely cast off by them for persevering in his engagement with a very deserving young woman. Have I been rightly informed? Is it so? Eleanor told him that it was. The cruelty, the impolitic cruelty, he replied with great feeling, of dividing or attempting to divide two young people long attached to each other is terrible. Mrs Ferris does not know what she may be doing, what she may drive her son to, I have seen Mr Edward Ferris two or three times in Harley Street, and I am much pleased with him. He is not a young man with whom one can intimately be acquainted in a short time, but I have seen enough of him to wish him well for his own sake, and as a friend of yours I wish it still more. I understand that he intends to take orders. Will you be so good as to tell him that the living of Delaford, now just vacant, as I am informed by this day's post, is his, if he thinks it worth his acceptance? But that, perhaps so unfortunately circumstanced as he is now, it may be nonsense to appear to doubt. I only wish it were more valuable. It is a rectory, but a small one. The late incumbent, I believe, did not make more than £200 per annum, and though it is certainly capable of improvement, I fear not to such an amount as to afford him a very comfortable income. Such as it is, however, my pleasure in presenting it to him will be very great. Pray assure him of it. Eleanor's astonishment at this commission could hardly have been greater had the colonel been really making her an offer of his hand. The preferment, which only two days before she had considered as hopeless for Edward, was already provided to enable him to marry, and she, of all people in the world, was fixed on to bestow it. Her emotion was such as Mrs Jennings had attributed to a very different cause, 
But whatever minor feelings, less pure, less pleasing, might have a share in the, that emotion, her esteem for the general benevolence and her gratitude for the particular friendship which together prompted Colonel Brandon to this act were strongly felt and warmly expressed. She thanked him for it with all her heart, spoke of Edward's principles and disposition with that praise which she knew them to deserve, and promised to undertake the commission with pleasure, if it were really his wish to put off so agreeable an office to another. But at the same time she could not help thinking that no one could so well perform it as himself. It was an office, in short, from which, unwilling to give Edward the pain of receiving an obligation from her, she would have been very glad to be spared herself. But Colonel Brandon, on motives of equal delicacy, declining it likewise, still seemed so de desirous of it being given through her means that she would not on any account make farther opposition. Edward, she believed, was still in town, and fortunately she had heard his address from Miss Steele. She could undertake, therefore, to inform him of it in the course of the day. After this had been settled, Colonel Brandon began to talk of his own advantage in securing so respectable and agreeable a neighbour, and then it was that he mentioned with regret that the house was small and indifferent, an evil which Eleanor, as Mrs Jennings had supposed her to do, made very light of, at least as far as regarded its size. The smallness of the house, said she, I cannot imagine any inconvenience to them, for it will be in proportion to their family and income. By which the colonel was surprised to find that she was considering their marriage as the certain consequence of the presentation, for he did not suppose it possible that a Delaford living could supply such an income as anybody in their style of life would venture to settle on, and he said so. This little rectory can do no more than make Mr Ferris comfortable as a bachelor, it cannot enable him to marry. I am sorry to say that my patronage ends with this, and my interest is hardly more extensive. If, however, by any unforeseen chance it should be in my power to serve him farther, I must think very differently of him from what I now do if I am not as ready to be useful to him then as I sincerely wish I could be at present. What I am now doing, indeed, seems nothing at all, since it can advance him so little towards it must be his principle, his only object of happiness." His marriage must still be a distant good. At least I'm afraid it cannot take place very soon. Such was the sentence which, when misunderstood, so justly offended the delicate feeling of Mrs Jennings. But after this narration of what really passed between Colonel Brandon and Eleanor while they stood at the window, the gratitude expressed by the latter on their parting may perhaps appear in general not less reasonably excited nor less properly worded than if it had arisen from an offer of marriage. So they weren't heavy chapters. But there were some interesting things that got brought up, I thought. And going, going way back to the very, very beginning of 38. Eleanor is trying not to think about Edward. Or Edward and Lucy, anyway. And Marianne keeps bringing him up. Kind of trying to, to say, oh no, but I know he loves you best. I know he loves you more. And to Eleanor, that's like, you know, reopening a wound. Whereas to Marianne, it's assuring her that the fact of the love was real. Perhaps she is indicating even more real than she thought her love was with Willoughby. And so what they're looking for, what they need to feel good, are totally contradictory. Eleanor doesn't bring up Willoughby. Marianne keeps bringing up Edward. And Anne Steele accosting Eleanor I don't know what other word we could use. She accosted Eleanor in Kensington Gardens. And, you know, first, first had to make sure nobody's angry. They're not angry at us, right? Right? It's okay? The Middletons will still speak to us? Okay, good. So, let me tell you what happened. Now, it was important that in Anne's version of the story, Edward is the one who comes to Lucy and says, please, you know I am not going to have a living. You know this is going to be a very hard life. If you want out, I totally give you that option. I will not be upset. Go ahead and walk. And Lucy says, no, 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 no. I love you. Which is interesting because when Lucy writes to Eleanor at the end of these two chapters, Lucy says that she said to Edward, Edward, if you want out, I understand. And he's the one who said, no, no, dear, I would never leave you. And 
Hmm, how interesting. I wonder which version is true. And were you surprised by how angry Eleanor got? How angry she got at Anne Steele for listening at the door? It may not seem like a big deal to us, but it is something that comes up again and again in Jane Austen. The idea that something is not your secret to tell. It is not your secret to listen to at a door lock, and it is not your secret to tell. Like Eleanor, even though it actually really pained her greatly, she never did tell anyone, not even her sister, about Lucy and Edward, because that matters. And it especially matters to Jane Austen. Now, there's one throwaway line that I think is kind of interesting about Edward. That he, he talks of going to Oxford soon, which makes perfect sense. He went to school there, and certainly there's a divinity school and a, a whole cross-section of the, the world of the clergy exists there. So if he was going to have to try and get a preferment on his own, he may go try to do it through school connections rather than his mother's connections. And, and probably moving faster is a good idea at this point. God only knows how fast his mother's tendrils can go out. The tentacles the rattling all of his choices. (laughs) But the other thing that I thought was interesting about what Edward, what what we hear about Edward, is that he is lodging at Pall Mall. And Pall Mall is one of those roads that's in this Mayfair district. It's on, I think it's actually the eastern edge or close to the eastern edge of the Mayfair district. That's a lot of money that he's spending to stay there. So instead of going and staying with a friend, instead of going and staying with a a distant relative or any relative or anyone but his mom, he goes and gets himself a room on the most expensive street in town, which doesn't sound very frugal or like someone who's about to lose his entire inheritance. So I, I thought that was kind of curious. And I don't know if that was Jane Austen trying to let us know that Edward maybe could use some guidance. Or, or what? I'm not, I'm not sure yet. We may figure it out, though. And then Lucy's letter. Good grief. That woman. I'm assuming that this letter from her is for no reason other than to gloat and to twist the knife in Eleanor's heart. But she does some interesting things in it. I mean, aside from the fact that her grammar is munched in different places. There's this whole section where she talks about We've had great trials and great persecutions and all that stuff. That's using biblical phrasing. Like she's, she's either trying to make it all more important than it actually is, or she's really positioning herself as someone who has struggled mightily against injustice and has persevered and has won. And then in that same section, she says, she says something else that I found really annoying. We've had great trials and great persecutions, but however, at the same time, gratefully acknowledge many friends, yourself not the least among them, whose great kindness I shall always thankfully remember, as will Edward too, who I have told of it. Now, we know that Lucy knows that Edward likes, loves Eleanor. Do we really actually think that Lucy has ever said anything nice about Eleanor or anything about Eleanor at all to Edward? No, no, we don't, not really. So, I mean, she has just, bold-faced lies running throughout this whole thing. But there was one thing that was kind of interesting. Towards the end of her letter, she says, my paper reminds me to conclude. Well, two penny post was based on the number of sheets that you used. So if you only wanted to use one sheet of paper, you had to stop at the bottom of the second side or do what Jane Austen did and turn the paper sideways and write in between the letters that you already, the lines of the writing that you already wrote. So you get this checkerboard effect. Or you just write around the margins, which other people did, which, which I have done. And that reminded me back in the day of typewriters. Uh, sometimes you'd get going, you'd really get cruising as you were typing, and you would type right off the bottom of the page. <laughs> I started putting little pencil marks at the like one and a half inch mark from the bottom so that I'd see it, I hope, and wind down so that I'd not miss the last useful line of typing before starting a new sheet of paper. It's kind of the same idea. And then there's the whole going to Cleveland thing and Somersetshire. Marianne does not want to be in the same geographical location as Willoughby. And honestly, who can blame her? He's been such a putz. 
but it would shave an entire day off of their very long trip home. Actually, more a little bit more than a day off of their long trip home, which saves money and makes it so that they don't have to get a chaperone in London to take them home from the location that they would be at if they go on this trip. They could probably get their mother's servant to come out and meet them because, of course, the servant doesn't need a chaperone. The servant would come out, meet them, and then ride with them back to Barton. So Eleanor really is trying to be both logical and prudent and economical. And Marianne, not so much at first. And then I loved that whole scene where Mrs. Jennings is watching Eleanor and Colonel Brandon at the window. And her assumption is that he is proposing. And it looks like, it looks like it's promising. It looks like it might be happening. And then, and then Eleanor says the strangest thing at the end that doesn't fit. And she can't quite figure out why. She just can't handle the fact that they're not now made for each other, she has decided. However, as frustrated as she is at not being part of the conversation, she does not eavesdrop the way Anne Steele did. And there's even a line, and she changed her seat on purpose so that she might not hear, which doesn't mean she's not paying attention, just that she's not listening in. Pretty cool. And then Colonel Brandon, what a mensch. I love this guy. So he's going to give Edward the rectory, because I guess it, it sounds like the previous rector kicked it, so the post is open. Timing. But then Brandon seems to be really surprised that Edward is going to marry Lucy and says, no, this place is really only big enough for a bachelor. And Eleanor, bless her heart, she seems to think that Lucy and Edward would limit the number of children that they had or the number of articles of furniture that they had based on the space given to them, that they would live within their means. While I can almost believe that Edward would be able to do that on his own, taking a room at Pall Mall notwithstanding, I have a very hard time seeing Lucy do that. And so it's, it seems like a bad idea to have Edward get married and take this job, this particular job, all at the same time. Plus, ouch, it would mean that Lucy and Edward would be living around the corner from Eleanor, which just, blah, I, I, mm, bad, bad, bad day. And I was trying to parse out why Brandon was so surprised that Edward still intended to marry. And the only thing I could think was that Brandon realized the, the reality of the situation that Edward made this decision when he was young and foolish and Lucy is beneath him and of course he, he can't possibly actually go through with this but I, I'm not sure Do, um, if you have another read on why Brandon said that please feel free to call in 206-350-1642 or email audio to me at heather at craftlit.com. And I think that does it for me for this week. Don't forget to send things in for the 400th episode. More information at craftlit.com slash 396. And don't forget, Bleak House, you can do a test run over at my little shop. You can get there at gumroad, all one word, dot com slash H for Heather and Ordover, H Ordover. And a direct link to the Bleak House bit is in the show notes. And then you can be as happy as Marta. Yay! We're still on the schedule that I sent out at the beginning of the summer, and I've reposted it on the show notes so you can see. Um, because there are there are weeks, <laughs> and there are weeks, and there may be another week because I am taking my computer into the shop um, in a couple days. So who knows? I have no idea what's going on, but it's annoying. Anyway, you take care of yourself. I will talk to you soon with more of Marianne and Eleanor and Colonel Brandon 
and Edward and Mrs. Jennings. Take care. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.lipson.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 